Well, it's lovely to be uh, with you all here this evening. Um, I'm Claire. As you may know or be able to tell by now, um, from my accent, I grew up in America, although I do get a surprising number of punts for Scottish, Irish, and even West Country. Um, And so tonight, I thought I'd start with a little cross-cultural tale. Um, So the thing is, I'm only um, half American. My dad is American, my mom's British, um, and and, uh, all my aunts and uncles and cousins uh, are here in England. When I was very small, we weren't very well off. And so flying over to uh, visit our UK family wasn't, wasn't really possible. So it wasn't until around the age of eight that I first remember gracing this sceptered aisle. Um, uh, my mom is one of four siblings, and they all have children around my age. Uh, so that, on that occasion of our first visit, we rented a cottage together, a big holiday-let uh, cottage in, in Wales together. That holiday, I was inaugurated in some of the delightful and peculiar ways of the British. Mint arrow bars, Yorkshire puddings, wearing jumpers in the summer, having to choose either a boiling hot tap or a freezing cold one, sauces needing no description other than their color. But by far the hardest thing for me to understand was when it was decided that it would be a fun family adventure to go for a walk. Now, it must not have been adequately explained to me beforehand, because a few minutes into the walk, probably around the time it started to rain, I caught up with my mom uh, to ask where we were going on this walk in the rain. She said, well, we're we're just going for a walk. Thinking she hadn't understood my question, I rephrased, but where are we walking to? She said, well, we're not walking to anywhere, we're just going for a walk. My next obvious American question was, but why, why are we walking? Well, you'll be pleased to know that I actually now quite enjoy that great British pastime of walking, um, and even I, I even do it sometimes willingly, uh, almost willingly, in the rain. Uh, but the question I asked as an eight-year-old visitor to this country was all about purpose. Why are we doing what we are doing? Since Easter here in the evenings at Encounter, we've been looking at the resurrection from different angles. Resurrection as predicted, resurrection as provable, resurrection as powerful. And tonight we're going to look through the lens of purpose, asking the question, but why, why did Jesus die and rise again? So tonight's reading was from 2 Corinthians, which is a real gem of a book. I highly recommend it. It's one of Paul's letters to the, to the Christians in Corinth. Um, it's a congregation made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And even though it's called second in our Bibles, it's actually thought that it's the fourth in the series of letters, which includes obviously 1 Corinthians. And while there were some serious moral issues and church difficulties that Paul um, addressed in 1 Corinthians, by this letter, the issues seem to be a bit more personal. There seem to be these outsiders who have come into the church and begun to throw doubt on Paul's character and abilities. And he spends the first few verses of our reading offering some defense of his ministry, as he does elsewhere in the book. But more worryingly, these new ministers have begun to lead the church away from the true meaning and work of the cross. And so Paul must remind the Corinthians about the purpose of the cross, the purpose of the resurrection. 
So why did Jesus die? Well, verse 14 gives us an answer that we might not be expecting. It says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. In other words, Paul is saying that Jesus died so that we all might die. Let me explain. Paul is talking about that profound Christian reality of dying to ourselves. Both the image and the reality of baptism, that the initiation into the Christian life, speaks of this very notion of leaving our old selves underwater, dying, drowning, and then rising to new life in Christ. So the purpose of the cross is that we might die to ourselves first so that we might live for God. Verse 15 says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to do two things at once, or even pay attention to two things at once? How hard it is to sneakily look at your emails in a long meeting without losing the conversational pl- plot and making a real numpty of yourself. How having the telly on while you do revision seems like a really good idea until nothing actually gets revised. How unbelievably difficult it is to carry on an adult conversation while trying to placate a two-year-old dictator. God knows that we can't do two things at once. He was the one who came up with the design. It's no accident that the first, uh, the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And no accident that when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment, what was the greatest of the commandments, he chose that commandment too. The purpose of the resurrection is that we might die to ourselves because it is impossible to live both for ourselves and for God. If you were to ask people on the street about the purpose, the meaning of life, you'd probably get a whole range of answers. But in my experience, the theme um, of happiness, of being happy, comes up as a pretty recurring theme. The pursuit of happiness is even enshrined in the American Constitution as a basic human right. And the idea that something or some experience can make you happy is behind almost every advertising campaign ever. So many of our daily choices, our weekly patterns, our life decisions are consciously or unconsciously driven by the question, what will make me happy? And the thing about dying to ourselves is that it actually doesn't sound all that fun. It certainly doesn't sound like a good campaign for get happy quick. Now, I am not saying that you shouldn't be happy or want to be happy. What I'm saying, what I think Paul is saying in this passage 
is that amazingly, paradoxically, counterintuitively, dying to ourselves and living for God is the only thing that can make us truly happy. Have you ever seen a greyhound run? I'm not talking about when they wear little vests and run around a track. I'm talking about after they've been cooped up in a house, taken on a walk to a deserted field, and then been let off the lead to go rocketing off, running and running and running, with no purpose, no goal, no aim other than just to run. When you see it, you don't have to be a dog person to feel that you are seeing something joyful and beautiful and free. It's a greyhound doing what a greyhound is meant to do, what a greyhound was created to do. It's the same for us. We were meant to love and serve God. We were created to live and work and be in him, with him, and for him. And when we do, you don't have to even be a church person to feel like you are seeing something joyful and beautiful and free. It is a human being doing what a human being was meant to do, what a human being was created to do. The purpose of the resurrection is that we might die to ourselves and live for God. Paul doesn't finish there. The purpose of the resurrection is to die, secondly, so that we might live for others. Verse 16 says, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Some of the most humorous parts of the Bible are in the Gospels when the disciples are, as Paul puts it, regarding Jesus from a worldly point of view. Like when he calls himself the bread of life and they start blaming each other for not bringing enough bread for tea. Or when he tells them that Lazarus has fallen asleep and then has to clarify, no, Lazarus is is dead. Or when Peter offers to throw up some tents when one of the most profound spiritual truths of the Gospels is being revealed at the Transfiguration. There was more going on than they could understand then. And it seems easy for us to see that from our vantage point of the resurrection. Paul's saying, we used to to see Jesus as an, an inspiring, challenging, compelling man who sometimes did things we didn't quite understand and said things we didn't really get. But now, now, in the light of the resurrection, we see him for who he is the crucified king, the son of God who sacrificed for all, the living, powerful savior of the world. And just as the resurrection changes how we see Jesus, it also changes how we see others. We now regard no one from a worldly point of view, Paul says. We've died to to who we were without Christ. And we've been resurrected to a world changed by unbelievably radical, transformative grace love, and love. The essence of verse 17 is that we now have Christ eyes. We may have previously seen our boss as an egocentric bore, but now we see a person who is made in the image of God. 
We may have previously seen a colleague as petty and insecure, but now we see a person who is profoundly broken and profoundly in need of Jesus. We may have seen our mom, our dad, our husband, our wife, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our neighbor, our dentist, our vicar, as people with flaws and failings and imperfections. But because of Jesus, because of the resurrection, we have died to ourselves. And we now live through Jesus toward others and for others. But it's not simply enough to view people differently. If we truly see people with Christ's eyes, if we see them for how God sees them, then we will long for and work for their salvation, for their coming to know, love, and serve God. Or as Paul puts it, for them to be reconciled to God. Jesus says about his own life and about ours that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. The purpose of the resurrection is that we might die to ourselves and live for others. Finally, Paul says there is another purpose of the resurrection. Verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The purpose of the resurrection, then, is to die so that we might live. This past Easter, Rhoda, our four-year-old, asked me this very question um, that we're looking at tonight. Why, why did Jesus die on the cross? So, like a good vicar, I began giving her the socio-historical background of first-century Palestine, the tensions and complexities of the Roman occupation and warring Jewish factions, until she stopped me and said, No, Jesus died for our sins. We can make things very complex, can't we? And really, they're very easy. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Jesus died for our sins. He died because sin has made a divide between us and him that can never be crossed through any human effort or offering. He died because death was the only way to bridge that divide. He died because the holy, spotless, sinless Savior would rather become sin itself than let sin separate us. He died so that we might live. We don't do altar calls much these days, but maybe we should. Because if you've tasted what money and prestige and popularity and success have to offer and you still want something sweeter, then it's time to turn to Jesus and live. 
Because if you've come to the end of yourself and found that you don't have any more, then it's time to turn to Jesus and live. Because if you've climbed the ladder and lived the dream and still want or need or long for something more, then it's time to turn to Jesus and live. Because if you found yourself alone or drift or aimless or weary or scared, then it's time to turn to Jesus and live. Because if you're tired of dying, then it's time to turn to Jesus and live. Why did Jesus die? He died for our sins. He died that we might die to ourselves and serve him. He died that we might die to ourselves and serve others. He died so that we might die to ourselves and live. So come. If you feel like you want to respond with your bodies as well as your hearts and your minds, then come. Sit or stand or kneel or pray with our prayer ministry team who I think are going to be in this general direction. If you're like me and the most profound spiritual things happen to you while you're sitting on your hands in your pew, then come and meet with God right where you are. If you need space and time or nature or movement or solitude, then come to whatever place and time it is that you need. But come. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Lord, as we came to church this morning, there was sewage flowing down the hill. But Lord, as we came this evening, it was being washed away. Lord, I pray that you would bring your cleansing, your healing flow of your spirit into our lives. Lord, that all that is dirty, all that is sewage, all that is not of you, Lord, would be washed away. Pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.